Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time that we can come together and hear from your word. Thank you for speaking to us even in hiding. Thank you for your pursuit of us. And now, Lord, we just simply ask that your spirit, as all the, the many different locations that we're in, that your spirit would bind us together as one to hear a message from you today. We ask this as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a few months ago, I was on the phone with a friend of mine. And this friend was fairly new to Christianity. And they asked me a question about the Sabbath. So I began sharing a little bit. And sometimes when sharing, it happens, I'm sure, to, to many of us. I got into this... Uh, Adventist jargon, or biblical jargon, as we might call it. And I said something like, we're supposed to fear God. And immediately the friends stopped me and they, they said, wait, we're supposed to be afraid of God? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> of course it didn't. <laughs> and so I explained, there's a difference, right? Fearing God and being afraid of God. And in the case that I was speaking of, I was simply talking about a type of awe, a reverence, a respect, uh, a realization of God's greatness and your place in comparison to that. But when thinking about that, I did think about the other proposition of being afraid of God. Even though intellectually one may know that God is not someone to be afraid of, the reality is, is that we still are. Many people are afraid of God. 
And in a time where fear over many things uh, happening in society is widespread, Pastor Todd, myself, and others, we're going to be talking about some different fears throughout the course of this series. And being afraid of God ranks one of the highest. And so why are so many human beings afraid of God? I mean, we're talking fear here, a a fear that makes you cease to engage, a fear that makes you say, I want nothing to do with this, or I want nothing to do with God. And this is small in comparison, but I (laughs) will tell you about my experience with roller coasters. Maybe you've been to Cedar Point. A couple years ago, I went, me and a few friends, and um, they were bragging and, and hyping up this roller coaster, the Millennium Force, 308 feet in the air, 93 miles per hour, second tallest roller, roller coaster at the amusement park. And they were like, that's the one we're getting on. So we warmed up a little bit, got on a few, uh, I would call them kitty rides. <laughs> and then we were ready, waiting in line for hours, it seemed. And I figured I would do what I did on the other rides, scream a little bit, you know, etc. But when I finally got onto the Millennium Force and I strapped in, clink, 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 up and up and up, my cart went 308 feet in the air. <laughs> and I began to think to myself, what am I doing? <laughs> What am I doing? My life is in danger. I am so scared. I am afraid. And yeah, it was not a pleasant ride. In fact, I was so scared, I was silent. Not a peep came out of my mouth. I couldn't even muster a sound. When the ride finished, I concluded that was it. I will no longer be engaging with roller coasters. My heart had almost jumped out of my mouth and I'm, I'm through. But it's this same type of deep scare that makes people afraid of God. So we don't engage, we don't draw close. We don't draw close, but why? Why are we afraid of God? And I can't answer that in 30 minutes, of course, but From the text, we can gather a few ideas and also find a way to remedy the fear that we may have of God. In the Bible, as it begins, Genesis 1 and 2, it opens the narrative with this resume, God's resume. And it begins to tell us some things that we can know and gather about God. That God is this being, not only a creator, he is the creator of heaven and earth. He made everything good. He creates humanity out of the dirt. He created a paradise home for uh, Adam and Eve. When he speaks, things come into existence. He is the source of all life and all living things. He created humanity to be co-rulers with him over the entire earth. It also makes clear that God is not the author of confusion, and it provides every, and he provides everything that humanity would ever need, including food and companionship in the form of himself and another person, community. 
Eve. He is a being that examines his work before he actually gives the final okay. He is the one that sets the standard for what is good and what is not. And if you know the account or the narrative, by the time we get to Genesis 3, we see that that paradise, that experience, didn't last. And they take from the fruit and they eat. And they eat. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. It says this, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And I hid myself. And for the very first time, fear. Fear enters into the story of the human experience. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Point to note number one. People are afraid of God because they are in a state they believe that God that is not presentable before God. In other words, we call it shame. They're ashamed of their condition. The things we do in the dark when we believe no one is watching cause many great shame. If someone were to know, if someone were to discover we would feel naked. Shame is the reason why people hide their substance abuse, their addictions, their sexual addictions, their vices. It's because of shame. Yet, in the story, God comes looking for Adam. And in our own story, he calls to us while we're in our hiding place. And somehow, even though Adam was hiding, he could still hear the voice of God. Why? Because you can't hide from God. Because when you're ashamed of yourself, when you're naked, when you're in the most vulnerable spot, God actually draws closer. Our shame, our feeling of not being presentable before God doesn't stop God from seeking us or even being able to locate where we're at. It simply just makes us delay the process of being found. So he says, Adam, where are you? Point to note number two. People are afraid of God because they believe he is a judge that will condemn them. You know, society's judgment is very, very different than God's. Society's judgment is condemnatory. God's judgment is redemptive. When God approaches a situation, he looks to see what can be saved, not what can be destroyed. He's eager for salvation, not destruction. And sometimes we get that mixed up. And the sad truth is, we've been told lies about who God is and the type of judgment that he gives. And we will always be afraid of the judgment of God if we constantly misunderstand and misunderstand it and misunderstand him. And history, history has given us a picture of hell and punishment and far different than what the scriptures actually describe. 
American Christianity, together with white nationalism, have masqueraded around with the face of a lamb. But actually, the horns are showing. If we just looked at three chapters of Genesis, we would discover a few key points in God's resume, a few key points about God. And here is the first thing. When something goes wrong, God comes down to check, to see what's going on. He surveys. And it's funny because I'm sure he already knows. He lets then too, he lets humanity actually voice their situation, their side of the story, what exactly happened, even though they're probably without excuse. Three, and then in describing the consequence of the cause and effect relationship that happened, he adds a promise of salvation, a promise of hope. And I even wonder in Genesis 3, now when I think about it, what tone of voice did God have when he came to speak with Adam and Eve and said, where are you after the fall? I used to think he was angry, but now I question, I, I question why I even think that in the first place. From our finite view, we only see a little picture of the work of God on behalf of humanity, and we often only see one part of the story. We could liken it to something that happens regularly every day. Uh, you see, you feel sadness and um, empathy for a little child being scolded in the store. But what you didn't see before <laughs> was the kid running around and sticking their dirty fingers <laughs> in each bin of candy. Hence the scolding. And within God's judgment, there is a salvific, not only undertone, but overtone. And within his discipline, the purpose is actually to save. God's judgment is not condemnatory, it's salvific. Another point to take home. People are afraid of God because they don't know him. And it's always hard to trust someone that you don't know. You know, the most searched question on Google, go to Google, related to Christian Christianity, related to religion, here is one of the most searched questions. Who is God? Who is God? Apparently, a lot of people around the world want to know. And who can even properly answer that question? No one. <laughs> so that's why God answers it for himself and for you and for me, not only in Genesis 1 and 2, but in the whole entire narrative of the scriptures, the entire account of the Bible. You get to see a snapshot, snapshots of who God is. And on one hand, lies and misrepresentation keep us away from God, or they even make us believe that he's in a constant state of rage or anger, even mythology, if we mix that up with the Christian God, we could come away feeling that God is always angry. 
God is not an angry God, although he does get angry. <laughs> when the Bible talks about visiting the iniquities of the children until the third and fourth generation, and this is, this is found, uh, Moses um, in Exodus chapters 33 and 34 asks God to show him his glory. And God shows him, and he begins to declare these things about himself. And one of the things that he declares is he says, visiting the iniquities of the children until the third and fourth generation. The reason why that sounds scary, and maybe it sounds scary to you, is because many of us believe the lie that the Old Testament God is an angry God. But I'm here to tell you, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In fact, we should want God to visit. The police, maybe not. But God, God can come and visit. Because I know when God visits, problems get solved. I know that when God visits, it's going to be okay. I know that when God visits, there will be peace and shalom. When God visits, things will be mended. When God visits, things will be made whole. When God visits, he's looking for me to save. When God visits, there's mercy. When God visits, there's grace. I want God to visit. I'm not afraid. Because when God visits, when God comes down, redemption happens. A perfect example of not being afraid of God is a story in the book First Chronicles, and it comes towards the end of King David's reign. It's an interesting story in First Chronicles chapter 21, and I'm going to flip there. First Chronicles chapter 21, and David does this foolish thing where he decides to number or give a census for Israel. And the reason why it was foolish is because Israel's strength didn't depend on how many men that they had. Israel's strength depended on God. It was God that won the battles for them. And so numbering Israel was simply just a reflection of a lack of faith and something God had expressly said not to do. So David decides to do it anyway, even though he shouldn't have. So he numbers Israel, and of course, God was displeased with him, and he sends Gad the seer to David to give a special message. And this is what he says in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 10. God, speaking to Gad, says, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you, choose one of them that I, might, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, disease, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout the territory of Israel. Wow. 
Uh, none of those options sound good to me. <laughs> none of them. But listen to what David says. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Verse 13. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall on the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Did you hear that? Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So you're saying that at the end of David's reign, this is what he had concluded about God. He had concluded that the best option when in trouble was to fall into the hands of God. What exactly did David know about God that we're missing today? Many people would run the opposite direction, but what was it? Why did David choose the strongest and greatest and most deadly option out of the three options that he had? Because David knows God. David knew that God cannot stand seeing his people in pain, especially from his own hand. He couldn't last. And in fact, he didn't last. If you continue to read the account, God stops prematurely. He doesn't even finish what he said he would do. He didn't even complete it. He stopped. And David knew that God's heart hurts when there is destruction, when there is pain. It hurts. David knew that God's primary modus operandi is to save, not destroy. David knew that. But man, he said, let me not fall into the hands of man. But man, falling into the hands, have you seen humanity today? Have you seen the police? Have you seen our justice system? Have you seen the problems with mass incarceration? Have you seen American history? Wait, have you seen apartheid in South Africa? Have you seen the early Christians and the entertainment in the Roman Colosseum? Have you seen it? Every continent on the planet knows the truth about human beings. There are no limitations to the destruction, to the pain that human beings will cause upon one another and even upon the earth. So David says, I'm a man of war. I've seen war. I've seen what men can do. I'll take God. I'll take God. David knew that God was good. David knew from experience that running towards God was always better than running away. David knew. David knew God. And based on what David knew of God, he wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid. Based on what I know of the narratives of Scripture, based on what I know of only three chapters, based on what I know of how God deals with erring humanity, of how God deals with the children of Israel, based on what I know of how God deals with people with no hope, 
based on what I know of how God deals with human beings who forsake him, based on what I know of God when he is not happy or pleased, based on what I know of God from my own experience, based on what I know of God, I am not afraid. I'm not afraid. No fear. No fear. What do you know of God? The Bible says that he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And then it continues, and it doesn't stop there. It says, come now. He invites you. Let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do you know about God? Based on what I know from here, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I want to know God like David knew God. I want to come closer like Moses. I want to be able to walk straight into the thunder and lightning. And while the multitude of people are shaking in fear, Moses is walking closer. I want to know God like that. I want to know that even when I'm in trouble, even when I'm ashamed, even when society doesn't see me, I can run to God. Will there be pain? Maybe. But will I be saved? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want to know God like that? Do you want to have no fear? God is not scary. He's good. And I want to invite you to make a commitment in your own heart to draw close to God because he will draw close to you. And, and that you would commit through a deeper look into the word of God, into God's resume, into his revelation of his love for you and me and the world. I want to invite you to commit to studying that. Is that your desire? No fear? Then may this also be your prayer.